Hey everyone, I just want to say that my novel, A Breaking Report, is finally available on Amazon. That's A Breaking Report, R A P P O R T. And now with the added bonus of being completely free if you've signed up to the Kindle Unlimited program. Now, if you prefer the touch of paper, then I have a hardcover and a paperback edition for those living abroad. But unfortunately, only the paperback edition for Australians due to the anti Australian discrimination. Thanks, Amazon. Regardless, I just want to say thank you for your support as this novel has taken five years to finally complete and it has been a labor of love through every step of the way. All right, now on to the podcast. Three, two, one, let's jam. This is the second episode of a two-part series about China in the modern world. In the previous episode, I was joined by Mr. Mitchell History, a fantastic YouTube channel about the topic of history, to answer the million-dollar question, what political system does China actually have? For this episode, we are thinking a little more globally, with our focus turned away from the domestic to the international. And as the American Empire, or Pax Americana in Latin, fades with the ascension of China, how will nations near and far adjust to the rise of another aspiring empire? So, in the age of living dangerously, as coined by Australia's former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, how will China behave? And perhaps more importantly, how will other nations and states react to this reshuffling of geopolitical power? Will China get increasingly defensive and hostile as the United States attempts to prevent its economic rise? Or will China turn to diplomacy to establish itself as the center of a new system? With the possibility of nuclear war looming over flashpoints in Asia and Europe, such as Taiwan, India and Pakistan, and now Russia and Ukraine, I think it's high time that we try to be a little more informed so we can decipher this madness of the 21st century. From nuclear holocaust to building new alliances and everything in between, I, along with Mr. Mitchell History, will try to predict the twists and turns in the game of empire that awaits us this century. I hope you learned something. I'd also like to ask, and maybe this is getting to the second part of this podcast, which is about the America and the Chinese relationship and how the world will unfold because of this relationship. So there's two things that really stand out when I listen to political pieces about the the relationship between these two countries. Firstly, is this sense of betrayal that America feels. And, And I'm not sure if this is being exaggerated, so I'd like to get your opinion. But there's always this talk about how like America opened its arms to China, allowed it into the, the World Trade Center, so World Trade Organization, I should say, and yet China didn't liberalize. It didn't adopt the American values, it didn't adopt these Western-centric values of democracy and et cetera, et cetera, stuff that we've talked about. And secondly, there's, there's a growing alarm in the American sphere, in the Western sphere, that America's decline is happening and that increasingly you'll get figures like trump who actually dissolve a lot of institutions of american power whether this is their 
their stake in the UN or their stake in, you know, the World Health Organization or something. What do you, do you think that's true? Because these alarm, alarmist ideas of American decline have happened before. And I, I remember us talking about Urza Vogel. He wrote a book saying Japan is number one, right? And he wrote that in the 80s. And that clearly didn't happen because of the financial crisis. So once again, I'm throwing a lot at you. But do you think, how do you think the American empire is going to unfold? Do you think these alarmist ideas are correct? Yes. To, to give the the grim and blunt answer, I would say the alarmist vision of America seems quite likely for a couple of reasons. Back in the 80s, America was a much more united country than what it is today. So a lot of people would have you know, been opposed to Ronald Reagan and Reaganomics, but South America and North America, not the continents is in the, within the country were far less divided than what we can see today. And that's just, that's just abundant. You turn, literally, you turn on Fox News, it's um, Biden's the worst president we've ever had. And he's been in for what, two years, if that year and a half. You turn mm-hmm. on CNN, MSNBC, it's, yeah, Trump is the Antichrist. And it's, it's a cliche. <laughs> it's a cliche. It's, it's said, it's said so many times, right, that America is a deeply divided country, but it's a cliche for a reason. It's, it's, it's abundantly true. So moving in a national direction, is going to be very tough for America. Empires work when there's a, a social contract that's cohesive amongst a nation, and America it clearly just is far from cohesive. The other issue for America is it's a very individualistic economy, and so in terms of economic, like they kind of they they're the masters of their own downfall because Chinese the Chinese economy provided them with such cheap labor and such cheap manufacturing that none of the American businesses wanted to kind of have American manufacturing because you can create products for so much cheaper with the Chinese labor. But the downside of that is you outsource all the manufacturing capacity to your direct rival. And now they're in a position where the American economy is de- has been dependent upon China. Trump made an effort to decouple them and Biden's continued that to an extent. But America is largely dependent on the Chinese manufacturing industry. And yet, and they can't do anything about it because companies only care about their bottom line and companies have such high stake and such strong influence within the American system that is an American politician really going to annoy all the companies that it could have lobbyist support for by saying we should have American manufacturing? Like Trump annoyed a lot of his own voting base by that trade war. And a lot of the companies who had lobbied for Trump were really annoyed that he did that because they liked having cheap Chinese manufacturing. So can America fend off a rising China and maintain its influence as number one? I would say it's unlikely for two reasons social divisions and because it's an individualistic society that can't move in a direction together. China, on the other hand, can move in a united direction. The issue is for China, the main thing they've got to be concerned about is if Xi Jinping makes a major misstep, let's just say he tries to occupy Taiwan and the invasion doesn't go ahead as planned, that's going to seriously damage his power and seriously damage Chinese faith in the Chinese direction. So China's system is working and they are on a trajectory to overtake America as long as they don't make a major misstep in the next decade, which would completely undermine Xi's centralized power over the direction of the country. So mm-hmm. the, mm-hmm. the for, for Americans listening, the grim answer is I can't see a scenario unless it's World War Three and America beats China in World War Three. That is the only scenario I can see America retaining its status as the global leader in terms of sphere of influence. And I actually, I agree with, you know, Unfortunately, it seems like this podcast is us agreeing with each other, you know, left and right. I agree with a lot of what what, what you said. And I feel like this idea of the misstep, especially the the polit- sorry, the military the military based misstep is 
quite prevalent in the Chinese thought. I think there's also a fear, especially after Ukraine, of taking Taiwan and then that being a flashpoint and then dragging all these different countries. I think, and the keyword is think, that China understands if they were to actually go into a war with America, firstly, it would be on their shores because of the American allies like India and Japan and Korea, which is close to China, meaning that the soldiers and a lot of the places of confrontation will be in the Chinese sphere, which, you know, it's not good for the economy. It's not good for the people, not good for the houses, architecture, blah, 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 blah. Um, I also feel like after Ukraine, there's a real fear of like, yeah, misstep in terms of the military expansionism. And then that, as I said, you know, might end up under underpinning or uh, sorry, undermining the Chinese authority. So I, I think that there's this idea of like, you know, we just let's not deal with Taiwan. Let's just keep increasing our rhetoric. But in terms of actually sending troops there, let's avoid that until the country becomes so strong economically or even better in terms of the Chinese mindset, in terms of the Chinese government, let's absorb Taiwan economically so strongly that we don't actually have to lift a finger. And I feel like that's a that's probably a big difference between the between China and America. I think America, for whatever reason, maybe historically or culturally or whatever, have been more um, willing to use force. But I, I think China often sees battles like, oh, we'll just beat them economically. We'll just swallow them economically. Do you agree with that that interpretation? Yeah, the ideal scenario for Xi is to take Taiwan without a war. Whether the, the likelihood of that is seeming less and less, especially after, I don't know if you saw, or it would have been a month ago when the last quad meeting was, how Joe Biden had the gaffe where he said, he was asked, will you defend Taiwan if invaded? And he said, yeah, I saw that. we will absolutely defend Taiwan. And then the White House kind of backtracked it. Yeah, I yeah. hope that was just Joe in his old age not remembering <laughs> yeah. correctly rather than him accidentally revealing what the White House's actual position is. But yes, I think the ideal scenario for China is to absorb a country and maintain influence over a country without going to war. For Taiwan, it's the issue is in semiconductors. So Taiwanese mm, economy sure. is actually in a pretty, like that's the main thing going for Taiwan is that it does have some sense of economic independence because of how dependent on semiconductors the world is. I remember I bought my laptop last year at like, I reckon like $500, $600 over what it would have been because of the semiconductor crisis. So mm -hmm. I think that is giving the Taiwanese economy a level of economic independence that is enabling its survival for now. But I think Xi Jinping has made it clear that he wants to occupy Taiwan within his lifetime. And that could be as late as 2032, but he wants to basically reunify China. That's been a lot of his messaging that Taiwan is a rogue state and it will be reunified within my rule. Deng Xiaoping couldn't do it, but I can. So he does want Taiwan, but the ideal scenario for Xi is definitely without a war. He would love to essentially occupy Taiwan and invade it without any support from Japan, America, or the Philippines. So I think for Xi, that's the ideal scenario. He probably, he definitely will be prepared for World War Three if it comes. Like he's not, he's clearly is much smarter than than I am. And even I can see that where, where the world's headed. So he's clearly prepared for a war. But for Xi, the ideal scenario would be to do it without a war and not actually flex his mega military machine, whereas America has been quite clean, quite keen to do that historically. And again, there's mm. like the cynical analysis is you've got these huge, the, the military industrial complex, you've got these huge mega contracts that these arms manufacturers get when a war happens. So they're incentivized <laughs> to lobby for a war, um, mm -hmm. whereas in China, the government controls the industry rather than the industry controlling the government. So I think that's probably another factor as well.
Mm, okay, well, let's let's do a, a lightning round. So I've written up a few things, some of the countries, some are events, some are organizations. I'm going to, you know, say say them. And then I want you to tell me what you think will happen in the next 20 to 30 years. Okay, so once again, I've just got a list of names of countries and places. I'll say them and then you tell me what you think will happen because of the either the rising Chinese power or the declining American empire, how this will clash off and, and what, what the consequences are going to be. So let me start off. In 20 to 30 years, what will happen to Taiwan? It will be occupied by China and there could potentially that could potentially be the cause of World War III or it could be seen as, say, like Hitler annexing Czechoslovakia. could go one mm-hmm. of two ways. In terms of how the West would portray it, I can, those are the two ways it could go. Either an invasion without, well, there'd be Taiwanese resistance, but without worldwide resistance, or it could be World War III. And the world, so when you, the world war, sorry. So, so when you say occupy, you mean literally like soldiers on Taiwan and not just like Taiwan comes to the table, they sign a deal and they handshake and it's sort of like a Hong Kong situation. You mean, do you mean boots on Taiwan? Yes. So I can now send, they'll send, they'll send, essentially a naval force over and they might even use airstrikes i'm not less persuaded that they will use airstrikes but i i considering taiwan has increased in the last 10 years its rhetoric as an independent state but assumed that g would use force rather than just like economic trade deals and and taiwan has also said we're not signing any like reunification deal as well so i think g would have little choice if he wants to occupy taiwan which he does but to use military force including yeah, essentially either a naval blockade and naval siege or, yeah, land it, using airstrikes and landing troops on the ground to forcefully occupy it. Would it be political suicide if she just steps back from this goal? Not to say that, like, it would be political suicide if, if he said that, you know, Taiwan is completely independent. Like, he, like I think that would really weaken his power. But what, what would happen if he just stepped back and he said, you know, we might reunite, hopefully we do, but not in not in my lifetime like oh i don't have to push it so so aggressively like is this just like an ego thing like i want to be the one doing it yeah what what do you think would happen if she just took a step back i think that'd be the best case scenario i think in terms of the future of the world there could not be a better situation than she saying not in my lifetime because then then you know for the next guy that gives a whole bunch of hope that whoever takes over from she might not have that ambition considering Taiwan would be going, you know, nearly a hundred years of rough independence. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think, the, I think the ego thing's exactly right. Jay sees himself in terms of, like he sees himself as a decisive actor in history that, that for, in terms of who's saying that that's coming from Kevin Rudd's The Avoidable War. So it's when I'm saying that it's not me just giving my pub psychology analysis on Jay. That's someone who I view as an authority figure on China, having personally met Xi Jinping writing that analysis but yeah, essentially, Xi sees himself as a decisive actor in history. And the final leg in making China great again is reunifying Taiwan with the mainland. And Xi wants to be the one who does that. So absolutely, it's an ego thing. And that's, for a lot of these politicians, it's their way of achieving immortality by for sure. having a legacy that lasts beyond the grave. And I think for Xi, that seems to be the case. Mm, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised. And, and once again, I think you make some fantastic points. Next one, trade war. What do you think will happen with the American-Chinese trade wars? Yeah, it's pretty grim. So essentially, for, for those who don't know, how did the trade war end? It ended in January of 2020 with the phase one agreement. Kevin Rudd actually helped broker that agreement where essentially China and Trump came to the table and said, all right, we'll kind of 
ease off all of these tariffs. That lasted for about two months until COVID happened and Trump kind of put the blame on China and he used, he called it like Kung Flu and the China virus and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then in June, America introduced the Uyghur Genocide Act where they called what China was doing a genocide. And so in terms of relations between the two countries, that's one of the lot, like calling it out another country for genocide is one of the kind of final steps a country can take in completely souring relations. So the American-Chinese relationship looks pretty grim. Biden largely doubled down on the decoupling of the American economies. You pointed out, I think in the intro, the one exception to that is climate change. Obviously, Biden is far more supportive of action on climate change than what Trump was, and he rejoined the kind of Paris Climate Accord. But that being the one exception, Biden seems to have largely doubled down on a lot of what Trump was doing, mainly because favorability rates towards China absolutely plummeted in 2020. And so to have all Mm -hmm. these pro-China deals would probably be a political suicide for Biden, even though it probably is what's in the country's best interest, big picture. It's not in the Democrats or the Republicans. They're not singling out Biden for this. It's not in the Democrats' best interest going into 2024 with Biden's approval rating as low as it is right now as well to have uh, someone who all of a sudden pivots back towards China. It makes Biden look weak and it it wouldn't go down well with an American public who is largely unfavorable towards China. So in terms of how the trade war ends, I'm seeing complete decoupling of the economies, if not, if a world war doesn't happen. The main, the for me, the main way that this can be fixed is two things. Number one, China agrees not to invade Taiwan, which seems very unlikely. Number two, America removes basically any recognition of Taiwan as having any independence at all. So it kind of, it takes its diplomats out of Taiwan. That's the best path I can see towards getting an economy that's interconnected again. But yeah, apart from that, America's economy is going to largely become decoupled from China's. But is that even possible? So I think politically, the, the everything you said fits the narrative of both countries. You know, we are independent. We're really strong. We don't need the other side. But is that like realistic? Because I, I can see politicians talking about this. But I think for them to like really decouple, I, like I think this will be like a two decade, three decade thing. This is not an easy thing, especially when these are the two biggest economies that like rely on each other for demand and supply. Yeah, and that, that, that's exactly the issue. So this is over the course of 20, 30 years, then I think that's enough time for the economy to pivot elsewhere. So you know, in the 80s, it wasn't all China, it was all Japan. And then, then it became China after that. Um, mm-hmm. So I think America will, will find someone else to kind of become economically dependent upon. India has India? been largely filling that role in the last 10 years. So I think they will find somewhere else. And also African manufacturing is getting heaps better as well. So I think that there will be other market sources. Also, as China becomes economically more powerful, they won't be making cheap manufacturing. They'll be making expensive manufacturing. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I can see them going elsewhere. But yeah, you're exactly right. This is going to take place over the course of 20, 30 years, not overnight. Mm-hmm. Okay, next one, Russia. The most oh, politically a, sensitive country in the world right now. <laughs> that's a great question. To be honest, I actually have no clue about Russia. I think the Ukrainian invasion obviously appears to have been disastrous for Putin. I, to be honest, I was surprised he did it. I I, I made myself look like an idiot. I said Putin wasn't going to go ahead with the invasion because I thought he yeah, was Yeah, me too. Purely, that's what I thought. <laughs> I, I thought he was purely leveraging it to get, get rid of it like, as, as, a, as like a bargaining chip against NATO. I didn't think he'd actually go ahead with it. Uh, mm. It seems like I don't think he has much to gain by doing it. So I think what Putin will die pretty soon is what? Is he 76 or something like that? Like he's... He's 76. He's, no way. He does not look 76. Really? 
Might have to hit, might have to I'll quick, quickly fact check myself. He's pretty old, I think. He's like he doesn't have a no, single 69. gray hair. Okay, no, he's sixty nine. Okay, I take that back. Okay. Must be thinking yeah. about someone else. Okay, so so but well, Putin will might you know he'll hit eighty. It's a lot tougher to govern from eighty onwards. So he's still potentially got another ten years in. But whoever takes over next might seem to make peace with the West, and they could be like, okay, Putin was kind of on the wrong track, kind of what Khrushchev did with Stalin. Putin was all, all on the wrong deal. I'm gonna come and make amends with the West and make amends with Europe. Alternatively, uh, they might, depending on how China's going and how China's relations with the rest of the world are, they might then pivot back towards China and say, no, we double down on it and we have China's support. If you want to take strong action against us, we can rely on the Chinese economy and we can rely militarily on having an ally that has perhaps by that point, the biggest military in the world. So mm-hmm. I'd say that's my, that'd be my two cents on Russia, but I, I, did, I got the Ukrainian invasion completely wrong. So... I think I'm a very poor authority on Russia. I'm actually leaning towards the second one, where I think Russia will, I don't want to use the word double down because that seems like they're throwing everything into the Chinese relationship. And for the YouTube video that you released recently about the Chinese-Russian relationship, there is tension. So so that's why I wouldn't say like they, they would double down on their relationship with China. But I do think because of the rising economy, rising power and military, they would probably lean towards China, especially with the Ukraine and souring and NATO and all that other stuff that we spoke about. Yeah, my opinion is they'll probably lean towards China, but not so much where they become like a Canada-America relationship because Canada is, is like very subservient towards their southern neighbor. Next, Japan. What do you think will happen with Japan? And actually, I'll throw South Korea into this as well. Japan and South Korea, eastern neighbors of China, what do you think will happen in 20, 30 years? Yeah, that's a good one. In terms of South Korea, they're looking like it's looking like they could become part of the quad. So then I guess it would become like the what the, the quid, the, whatever you whatever your five is. Uh-huh. Uh, so Japan, the main concern for them, I think, is around the Senkaku Islands, which is off the coast of Taiwan. Effectively, what happened was 10 years ago, Japan bought these islands off of a private owner. Geographically, they're much closer to mainland China than they are one of the four main islands of Japan. So that created a whole lot of issue because China said these are our islands. They effectively built an air defense identification zone around the island. And then Japan mm-hmm. and America flew through that air, air defense identification zone. So I think that's where the tension is. If China was to say occupy one of those islands, which I don't think they would because that's bringing Japan in unnecessarily, mm-hmm. there could be a war there. There could be, it depends what North, if World War Three was to happen uh, for South Korea, I think it would largely depend on what, uh, North Korea did in response to World War Three, and Xi Jinping and Kim Jong Un, like North Korea and China, are allies. But uh, Kevin Rudd has spoken on a few occasions about how Xi Jinping personally has personal disdain for Kim Jong Un, and he really doesn't <laughs> mm-hmm. like Kim Jong Un on a personal level. So mm-hmm. uh, it really depends what would happen between those two. I don't really know what would happen in a World War Three scenario. I think then that would largely influence what happens to South Korea because then they've got a hostile state right on right on the north, which they already do in terms of how South Korea views it. But yeah, sorry, to get back to your original question, what would happen to Japan? Potentially involvement in World War Three, either through its involvement in the Quad or through the Senkaku Islands being taken. And for Korea, what would happen to them? Well, it depends what happens to North Korea and whether or not they join the Quad as well. So both scenarios point towards them likely being sucked into World War Three if it does happen. And then if it doesn't happen, affairs are very tense for the next 20, 30 years. 
Mm-hmm. I, I I agree with that that assessment. But let's just walk down the no World War Three. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm an optimist. Maybe I want my hypothetical children to see a hypothetical world. So I'm hoping for that outcome. But let's just walk down a non World War Three outcome. Do you think eventually, and there is like political tension, and there's also the narrative of World War Two, and like basically how this caused a lot of hatred and a lot of tension between these three countries with Japan's colonial aspirations in South Korea and China. But do you feel like in, let's just expand the time period, let's just say 60, 70, 100 years, that slowly these two countries will just purely by their cultural similarities and also because of the economic gravity will be slowly pulled into a Sinocentric world? Oh yeah, a hundred years from now. I mean, that's I mean, a hundred years. Like, I'm going, I'm going like really intense with like the predictions. But like, do you think if there was no World War Three, like it would eventually just lead to like let's just say like the 15th century and how Japan and Korea had a relationship with China? Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's pretty fair. The tough thing is that America has effectively built both of those countries, so the america the the cultural and even political roots to america are so deeply ingrained in both of them so you've got macarthur who occupied japan after world war ii and effectively ran it as a dictator for for a couple of years until he stepped back and then you've got south korea which was built by all these great american trade in the in the 60s they were pretty poor in the 50s but they really took off in the 60s so both of them are culturally really ingrained with america i think it would largely depend on what happened to america and i'd say the reason why i say it depends, is because Australia's relationship with Britain changed when Britain lost its power. So when Britain mm-hmm. became far less so, first half of the 20th century, we were all about Britain. We literally fought in World War I to fight for the mother empire. After World War II, when America and Australia had a shared enemy in the Japanese, and most of our attention was in the Pacific rather than helping England out in the Europe, or Britain out in, the, in Europe, we then pivoted towards America after World War II. We signed like the ANZUS Treaty, and then we supported them in obviously like Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan. So in terms of what could happen to Japan and Korea, they might pivot towards China if America does decline in its influence. But the the difference between Australia and Korea is America and Britain, it was a peaceful takeover. So America took over from Britain peacefully and Britain was quite happy to cede its role as number one to America. Alternatively, America doesn't seem to be happy at all to cede its number one role to China. And so Mm -hmm. it could put North and sorry, it could put South Korea and Japan in a tricky situation to what as to what they do next but they could very well side with china because just geopolitically it makes more sense to side with big neighbor who's close to you that's the leading world figure rather than the person across the pacific ocean that has less power anyway mm-hmm. okay the middle east what do you think will happen oh i've got no clue to be honest yeah like what i don't I, I i'm not even up to date where is israeli palestinian negotiations are at to be honest i i i I have no clue about the Middle East. I mean, it's tough because they're, they're in 100 years from now, their big asset is over. And so they're having mm-hmm. to repivot their economy. So mm-hmm. oil and gas, yeah, assuming renewable revolution goes ahead, their <laughs> their major economic asset is over. And so, you know, how much power do they wield? I don't know. What does Iran do? If it's, you know, because Iran's in an alliance with China and Russia by association, they're kind of a standing member in the Shanghai Corporation. Mm-hmm. What does Iran do? Well, yeah, World War Three. they potentially fight on the side of China and Russia and get a favorable deal if, say, China was to win World War Three. Alternatively, America might try and take it out of existence. During World War Three. it could be a front of war. So, yeah, I'd say, like, Iran would be the one that I could speak 
mostly two. But and then again, a lot of people don't even consider Iran as part of the Middle East. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, I, that's a long-winded way of saying I've got no clue. What are your do you have yeah. any thoughts on what will happen in the Middle East? Uh, I feel like see, I originally would have said that Russia's influence would have continued to, I guess, grow. They they, they might see it as like you know their backyard, which they did during the Soviet era. But now I feel like Russia is a declining power in terms of their economy, in terms of the population size. That's probably a big one. Their population is expected to decrease significantly. And granted, you could say the same about China and even Japan and, and other countries. But I'm not so sure because honestly, once again, we're echoing each other. Once oil becomes less important, I think the Middle East is going to be almost like South America where their big asset is no longer valuable and thus countries around them will start to influence them. Basically, you know, why is Saudi Arabia, you know, powerful or why is it like independent? It's probably, it's, I would say, because of America's backing and because America needed oil, they formed this relationship. But once this relationship is no longer necessary, I don't think America cares that much for Saudi Arabia, to be honest, because, you know, political and cultural differences, et cetera, et cetera. So, that is my long-winded way of saying I have no idea as well. So <laughs> let's let's get to let's get to Union and the United Kingdom. So do you think the European Union and I, I've seen this not this year with the Ukraine crisis, but over the last decade, I think economically they were just pivoting more towards China. Now you could say this about a lot of economies just because of the gravity of Chinese economy. I'm not sure if this is true, but I felt like there was some tension between the EU and America, even before Trump. But Trump obviously just like, you know, threw a torch on it. But now now I'm not really that sure because EU has like, you know, firmly stepped in line with America on the Ukraine issue. I don't know what will happen. I think, you know, that's the key word that, and maybe I'm seeing the world too much through an economic lens. And I think that's a, if someone was to criticize my thought, I, I think that's a valid criticism. But it would probably do what, Australia is doing where it depends on China economically more and more, but for in terms of military alliance, it might lean towards America. What do you think about that? Yeah, the E is a good one because it's actually in terms of who you think are America's conventional allies, the E is probably the one that actually exerts the most amount of independent thought. So effectively, EU is really annoyed at America, or has been largely annoyed at America for a few reasons. Your Trump pulling out of Paris Climate Accord really annoyed America. Number two. Uh, last year, the UK, America, and Australia signed that AUKUS deal um, mm-hmm. to where we basically scrapped our deal to buy uh, French subs in an agreement to buy American nuclear subs instead. We didn't tell France about it. France was really annoyed at us mainly, but also Macron was really annoyed with America for kind of just completely undermining this deal that they had. And then also at the same time, a lot of the EU is part of the Belt and Road. So China's economic initiative to effectively create a web of... Um, infrastructure projects across the world and so a lot of them are part of the belt especially like looking into eastern europe and even into germany as well so yes they they do exert some amount of independence over america the uk is also closely aligned with america and obviously the eu is still annoyed at the uk for for, for abandoning them so Mm -hmm. i think if in terms of how alliances play out i think britain would be heavily on the side of america and that would be a very natural coalition Depends on the grounds of the war. If a Taiwanese invasion happened, I think the EU would stay out of it for the most part. They might economically supply Taiwan with machinery and equipment and resources, but I don't, I'm not convinced they'd actually go to war and fight over them as well. So 
I think the reason why they spot responded so heavily to the Ukraine invasion is because they most of them are part of NATO and obviously Ukraine is a European country, so they saw it as an attack on one of their own. But in terms of the Asia-Pacific sphere, I don't think they're as fussed and I think they're quite happy to pivot themselves in between the two, then throw themselves behind either side in a war. They wouldn't fight for China. I could, it, I, I'd be very surprised if they fought for China during World War II. World War I III, doubt I that. Um, that. I, I can't but, see how that would happen. <laughs> yeah, but I can, I can see them not being so quick to join America because there is a, mm. America has annoyed them and there are some Chinese connections as well. With India, so the next, the next stop point for India, you can clearly see they're moving towards America and by extension, moving slightly away from Russia, but there's still a lot of Russian connections. Do you think, you know, apart from the obvious comment that they will become increasingly pro-American as a counterbalance towards the Chinese neighbor, do you think they will start a war over, or there might be a possible, like, what do you think is the possibility of a war over places like Kashmir or something? Yeah, I don't think, I don't think there'll be a war over Kashmir and like, because A, because I don't think China's got huge territorial ambitions there. B, I think China, basic China's in terms of Western China, their main ambition is to basically increase the wealth of its Western Chinese population rather than take new territory. That'd just create more issues for them. So I don't think the Kashmir region will create a, a major war. Also, there's the fact in 2020, there were Indian and Chinese soldiers killed at Pangong Lake and that didn't result in a major war. So I, I don't think that will result in a, in a, in a major war. The issue is India's part of the Quad. And because India's part of the Quad, say America was to go to war with with China, that could definitely rope them in. And like you said, they were once allies with the Soviets, but now they're pivoting far towards America. China's pretty closely allied with Pakistan, and that that's huge issues for India as well. So mm-hmm. I can very easily see India getting themselves involved in World War Three. They've also banned TikTok and WeChat. So Modi put that ban on in 2020. So like I, I can very easily see India getting involved in World War Three, but I don't think it would be from the from Kashmir, I think it would be... Also, I've just got to charge my laptop. It's dangerously low. All good. But yeah, I, I, I can see it coming from um, a Taiwanese invasion more so than Kashmir. So I just chuck my laptop on charge. Okay, so we got a few more dot points before we wrap up this podcast, but let's look at South America. So South America, because of the... What doctrine was it? Was it the Monroe Doctrine, I think? Yeah, Monroe, I think. Yeah, the America considered itself South America its backyard and obviously had a lot of political control uh, and economic control in these areas. I see China as a counterbalance, and it's very similar to India, becoming more economically intertwined in South America and playing on some of the tensions in like the past history of like America, of the United States, I should say, having such a powerful reach there. Do you think this relationship will continue and South America will become increasingly more, you could say, left-wing or increasingly more, I guess, Chinese-orientated. Yeah, how do you see the relationship playing out in South America? Yeah, like, I'll be honest, South America is one I don't know heaps about. In terms of how how South America views America or USA, the thing America does have going for it was the good neighbor policy that FDR put into place back in, I think it was 33 or maybe 34. That actually... So basically what happened was America withdrew all these soldiers from Central and South American countries. And so as a result, America's favorability in the eyes of South America was a lot better. In terms of how China plays off of that kind of like colonial tension, it's it, it, it's it's interesting. I think typically more recently, some pro-US people have come in. So you got Pinochet in Chile, 
what's the Brazilian president? Should he just recently got voted? He got kicked out like a month ago or two months ago. Uh, I think that's so. Oh my lord, no, Bolsonaro. There you go. Yeah, that's him. That's him. So, like, typically they've been far more heavily supported by by the USA. But yeah, in terms of how would China use that? They could easily play on that and get South American leaders to flip. But they've been pretty firmly locked in terms locked to America recently. I know. Do you, you said a little bit more about South America? Do you have any ideas about South America? I see some socialist governments, and you know, I say this at the same time acknowledging that like ideological trappings are they they don't really play that big of a part in terms of geopolitics because of everything we said before countries are self-interested they you know they care about their own benefits but i do see more left-wing governments and politicians entering and a i think to be honest the more china becomes the more powerful it becomes and the more willing it is to make deals i think partly out of spite in terms of past history south america will probably lean more towards China, but I don't think in the next 20, 30 years, it will be to the point where America needs to come and step their foot, uh, you know, step their foot down and really do an invasion. So I don't think it'll be like a Cuba thing where China will try to put missiles or, or machinery or weapons on these countries, but by building better trade links, I think they will try to undermine America. But in the in the next 20, 30 years, I don't think it'll be to the se- to the extent where America sees it as like a a genuine threat like cuba i think this is something underpinning a lot of my analysis of china and once again i i'm not sure if this is correct but i really see i really think china sees the war primarily as an economic one and because of that i think they will try to undermine countries economically rather than actually sending their military into different countries and i i think you know there's many reasons for that i just don't think their military is as strong as the united states but secondly i think I think Chinese military cultures, what's the right word? They they don't, the Chinese don't really elevate the military as much as the Americans. So for whatever reason, I, I think China wants to wage economic wars or economic sabotage more than they want to do military sabotages. Yeah, that makes sense. Especially like if China's going to play, like think this one through, you, you don't want your Navy diverted to South America because if you're going to have any sort of warfare front anywhere near American home mm-hmm. soil, um, the mm-hmm. last thing you want is your ships out of the South China Sea, which will be such a crucial battleground. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I can that <laughs> that will check out Africa. Do you think it will be increasingly integrated in Af- in into China? Like, do you see any roadblocks in that that progress or that process? Yeah. So, in terms of Africa, China's seems to have pretty much locked that one down. So, Africa's largely fallen under the radar from the US's point of view. I guess from America's point of view, they were never their colonial territory, whereas you look at Britain, France, Belgium, to some extent Germany, though their colonies were much smaller. They they actually did have colonial territories in Africa. America didn't. And so when Trump was in power, they largely fell off the radar in terms of Trump's foreign policy. So China has very quickly filled that void. So the main difference, I think I said it before, with American loans to African countries... There's a quid pro quo of you implement democratic reforms. China doesn't have that. At the same time, America's foreign aid is all towards essential services. So you use this for your hospitals. You use this for your access to clean drinking water and stuff like that. China's is spend this on whatever you want. Ideally, actually spend this on building a new railway. And if you don't want to do that, we'll build that railway for you. And so China mm-hmm. has invested heavily in infrastructure projects, and this has given them a favorability that is starting to trump America's. 
So American loans, last last time they were polled, this was back in 2019, America was polled as having a better favorability rate than China in terms of what the loans do. Since then, I think China would have overtaken them, mainly because they supplied Africa with vaccines after COVID when the G7 uh, was still kind of getting their act together in what they did with Africa. Mm-hmm. So African favorability towards China is really high. You go on any YouTube video and look up China, Africa, debt trapping or anything like that. The comments from, are from African people all saying how much they appreciate the Chinese loans because it's giving them infrastructure that they need uh, for things like your railways and your roads and all that sort of stuff. So the net effect of that is you've got a generation of African people growing up who are strongly favorable towards China and they have always been anti-Western because the West colonized them after all. So they're growing up with African pride, a deep sense of resentment towards the nations that colonialized them and contributed to kind of the huge well, a huge uh, absence of wealth. And then finally, they're really thankful to China for giving them these loans. So you've got a generation growing up with this attitude towards China. That means the next generation of leaders are likely to have a much more favorable opinion of China, which means if a World War III scenario happens, China is going to get a ton of African soldiers considering how their population is absolutely booming. So yeah, in terms of how does Africa look moving forward, I think it's increasingly pro-China and increasingly anti-America. And I think it's a huge area of foreign policy concern for the Americans and a huge pro for the Chinese. So it's crazy when you break it down like that, because every point you said, I'm like, oh, that makes logical sense. And yeah, that logically leads on to this and this. When you break it down like that, it really feels like, and I know you used this analogy before, it's like a chessboard. Like she is like, oh, resources. They've got people. They've got X, Y, Z. They've got natural resources. This is something I can tap into in order to benefit myself. And you know, if I can benefit them on the side and build stronger relationships, awesome. But primarily... It seems like you know China sees Africa as like a, a place for natural resources or a place for people, and you know just to make it make the criticism fair, it seems in response now America is worried about Africa primarily as a way to check Chinese influence rather than actually trying to you know improve the the wealth or the economies of that continent. Yeah, ex- exactly right. So Xi is ideological, but he's not evangelistic. As in, he does he's not after he's not out to convert people to Chinese communism. He's like, this system works for us, and this is the ideology I want to put upon Chinese people. But in terms of other countries, they can have whatever system they want as long as they serve our national interest. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I think the chessboard's the analogy to use. He's not looking to do what Mao did and create like you know all these communist nations like Angola. What he's trying to do is he's just trying to say, hey. Here's what we're giving to you. You can either use us or use America. If you use us, this is what you're going to get. You're going to get infrastructure. And then in return, that's going to benefit us with you supporting us. So yeah, that's exactly it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Australia. How do you think this country will move forward? Yeah. Uh, We like in terms of our foreign policy towards China, the last five years has been something of a, of a train wreck in terms of managing the relationship. So effectively what, what, what's happened to us is Tony Abbott, so our Prime Minister back in, he got elected in 2013, he welcomed Xi Jinping to Parliament and Xi came to mm-hmm. Australian Parliament and it was this all rosy thing. A free trade deal was then signed the next year and it was looking great. Fast forward to Malcolm Turnbull, who was the Prime Minister afterwards. Effectively what happened is he had, he implemented this anti-foreign lobbying bill, which is fine, that, like, it's a good, like, it, the policy made sense. But it was clearly targeted towards China because China had supported a Labor senator called Sam Dastiari. So then when Scott Morrison comes in, the, the everything starts to fall apart. 
He requests that the WTO launch an independent investigation into how COVID started. Obviously, that annoyed China. And then when the Quad started to become a much more stronger presence in the Pacific, China decided that it would target us by putting tariffs on all sorts of exports we have, like wine and barley and wheat and that sort of stuff. So that then created something of our own trade war, where we got sucked into this trade war, devastated economies like in Tasmania that were largely dependent on wine exports. And so that put us in a tricky situation. The rhetoric against China then ramped up massively. You turn on Sky News today, there's a sweaters, a hit piece every day from Sky News because I've got them on my YouTube feed because I'm just curious to see what they say. Every Mm -hmm. day I reckon there's something about China. Maybe it knows what I watch on YouTube, so it's got the algorithm catered to me. You turn on like the Today Show or Sunrise, these are all like mainstream Australian outlets. And it's all about why China is the next boogeyman and what we need to do to stop it. And the Liberal Party largely ran on a campaign of anti-China. Vote for us. We're tough on China. Peter Dutton is going to kind of help stop the risk that China poses. Albanese, on the other hand, is soft on China. We've done a lot of damage in the last five years. It does. The last month has actually looked pretty positive. So Penny Wong, our new foreign minister, seems to have improved relations to some extent with China. I don't think Albanese will be anywhere near pro-China. I think he's largely going to keep Mm -hmm. the status quo. He went to the quad and basically more or less said, we're going to keep running with you guys. Like we're Team America, more or less. But I don't think he's going to be quite as antagonistic towards China as what our previous one was. I don't, regardless of who's in power for the next 10 years, whether it's, you know, Liberal, Labor, or by some, you know, the Teals and Greens just completely take over, regardless of who it is, I don't see a scenario where if Taiwan gets invaded, we don't go and support Taiwan because of our quad alliance. I would love it if we actually had a bit more independence and a bit more of a say. But I think we're just too closely aligned with America, so much so that if any leader was to distance ourselves from America, that'd be political suicide and there'd be hit piece after hit piece on them. And then also at the same time, to pivot towards China is just unachievable now for any Australian politician, given how bad our perception is of China as a country. So whatever happens, I can't see us not supporting whatever America does. Hopefully Taiwan doesn't get invaded and hopefully we don't get sucked into a war. But I think that is the more likely scenario, unfortunately. Damn, man, you you said everything I was about to say. You literally took oh, every, all my all my points, and you just rattled them off, man. But that's that's fantastic. And once again, like I've said this three times, but like it seems like we echo each other quite a lot. But I, I really agree with a lot of your your ideas and a lot of your sentiments. So, do you think the previous idea of let's rely upon China for economic benefits and let's rely upon America for military security? Do you think that will be increasingly changed in the sense that like Australia, similar to America, will try to decouple themselves like willingly? Like as you mentioned previously, the trade embargoes were not like willing, like Australia did not want that to happen. But do you think Australia will try to distance themselves economically from China and increasingly lean towards America? Or do you think just because of the gravity of the Chinese economy that they will forever be stuck being reliant upon or we will forever be stuck reliant upon the Chinese economy? Yeah, that's a great question. Honestly, I've, I, I, I'm not sure. So the GFC gave us a chance, like GFC helped us pivot towards China economically, and then we've largely become independent. They're our biggest trading partner. But then I can very much see a scenario where America puts, he says, you know, if you want those nuclear subs that we've promised to you, you need to cut this amount of trade with China um, mm-hmm. and, yeah, effectively try and, limit China's trading partners. I can see that being a scenario that, that does happen. Whether it will happen, I'm not sure. But 
Yeah, you're exactly right. The, the huge issue for Australia is economically, we're Team China. Militarily, we're Team America. And mm-hmm. that is, we're at a bit of a crossroads. Rudd, what Kevin Rudd tried to do, which I appreciated, was he tried to make us the facilitator between America and China. So in the same way that like Pakistan facilitated America and China initially, basically Rudd tried to play that role. Obviously, he got voted out. And since then, we've politicians that are much more anti-China. So I don't think that's a viable option anymore. I think we'll pretty much be forced to decide. And I think we'll go with America rather than China and look elsewhere Mm. for the economy, such as the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was an effort going back six, seven years to try and pivot away from China. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I definitely have to send you some John Mearsheimer stuff because he actually talks about this topic in, in a lot of depth. All right, last question before, before we wrap it up. What do you think, Mr. Mitchell? 2024, will Trump run for office and will he get elected? Let's end this podcast on a spicy note. I can give you that spicy note. I'm going to say yes and yes. Yeah, um, me too. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think Biden's so unpopular. Some of the things I'm actually quite sympathetic towards Biden for, and he's just... Um, I feel feel sorry for the guy. He's what he's, he's old. He makes gas all the time, and whatever he does, the 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 perception of Biden's been set. So when Biden fell off the bike the other day, anyone that could have happened to anyone. That's a very normal accident. But the confirmation bias comes out. Oh, it's because he's old because he's incompetent. He can't even stay mm-hmm. on his bike and all that sort of stuff. I think Biden is so deeply unpopular that they won't run him again. If they do, Trump will destroy him. The only Republican I can... What's the Florida governor called? Is it DeSantis? Is that his name? Marco... Or not Marco Rubio. Is that, um, not Rubio? It was, is it Ron DeSantis? Or some, something that I've probably... Not sure. Once. The guy, he's made heaps of... He's really popular in like your Ben Shapiro circles and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They... They really like him. So apparently he could be a potential candidate. You've also got like your Ron Paul, who since COVID has kind of really galvanized the like anti-government libertarian faction of the Republican Party. So I think those would be my three. But Trump is such a kingmaker within the party that um, in terms of how the delegate system works and you've got your superdelegates, it doesn't matter what the American public thinks or what the Republican Party thinks in terms of the people. He's just got so much power within the within the party that... If he runs, who's going to stand in his way? Because he's making people governors right now. So I think he will. I think he will run in 2024. And if he takes on Biden, he'll win. I can't see the Democrats running Kamala Harris because she's also very unpopular. So they're going to have to get this new Democrat who hasn't had any limelight for the last however many years. I don't know, maybe like a Pete Buttigieg or someone like them. And they just won't be able to counter Trump's popularity. I think 2024, Trump will be, or 2025 when he's sworn in. Trump will be back as president. That's I agree with a lot of a lot of those insights, and I really think the Democrats messed up um, in 2016 when Bernie wasn't like pushed to the forefront. Because I really think Bernie would have been an effective counter towards Trump. And I think the biggest thing with the Biden and Trump and all these politicians is Trump, whether you like them like him or not, he has a diehard selection of fans. Like he, there are people who like a crazy about Trump. Now, this isn't the majority. This isn't like everyone in America, but the people who really support Trump, like that's quite a big group. And the people who are like huge fans of Biden, I don't think there are any people like with like, you know, make Biden great again, like YouTube channels or something like that. No one has Biden as like their their profile photo, whilst Trump has a real like army behind him. And I, I really think Biden is like lactose. Like he's very lukewarm 
and mm. maybe he was he was voted in because how badly Trump messed up the COVID response. But I also think 2024, 2025, Trump will get elected and sworn in. Well, the thing that Trump Trump's always had going for him as well was in 2016, he actually spoke about policy. A lot of the policy, you know, I don't think most Americans would actually agree with, but it was something substantive. I, we're going to pull mm-hmm. out of Paris, we're going to build a wall, and we're going to put tariffs on China. Whereas Clinton didn't have any of that. Clinton was like, what, her campaign was, I'm with her. And it was a such a waste absence. of opportunity. And yeah, so Bernie's, was all, Bernie's was all policy. And so, yeah, Biden, like he could thankfully run on policy. We're going to have... You know, vaccines by this stage, mask mandates, like basically it was all, all a lot of COVID stuff and we're going to get back into the Paris Climate Accord. You need someone to run on policy. Trump can just say, I'm going to undo everything that Biden did in these last four years. And then but the thing I'm curious as well be is like, is this going to be a cycle of Biden gets in, puts America back back in, par- back in Paris. Uh, Trump gets in, takes them back out. Is this going to be this loop of America being in and out and a completely unreliable partner for these global efforts? I don't know, but yeah, it should be really interesting to see. And I feel like the EU, that's why they're pivoting or that's why they're shaky because I think they expect a Trump to come back in. And then once Trump comes back in, I think they, he will try to isolate himself or try to isolate the country, make America great again, you know, cut off a lot of deals or organizations that he had with other places, other countries. And I think that will scare the EU quite a lot. Whilst, you know, at the same time, Trump will try to nationalize or I guess pull Britain more into its orbit. And yeah, I think you're right. There is going to be a lot of this instability with the left and right kind of switching places. And as you said at the very beginning or in, in the middle of this podcast, because America is becoming more and more divided politically, every time there's a new president, there isn't that smooth transition because a lot of their like politics, or a lot of the ideas, a lot of the, the values underpinning them seem to differ quite a lot in comparison to like the past, you know, the past few decades. So Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Mitchell. I just want to say once again, at the very beginning, I know I echoed this, but you have one of the best YouTube channels on history. I always think your stuff is presented so well and very fair. And I really think that's the standout value. Like you you look at it very fair. And that's why I reached out to you to jump on this podcast to talk about China. And it's been a pl- it's been a blast. So any last words you want to say? Oh, thanks so much for having me on. I've enjoyed actually talking to some, most, like nearly all people that I've talked to in my life have zero interest in this topic at all. So I feel like, I don't know, like I'm at a convention or something where you finally get to find that other kid that <laughs> like Pokemon too. Um, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I've, I've really, really enjoyed being able to just talk about what I find interesting and what I want to teach to my students as well. So thanks for having me on. Um, it seems like you're a bit of a jack of all trades. I'm impressed with your knowledge in a lot of these different areas considering... Yeah, China's more of a side interest of yours, considering what you've got all your other podcasts on as well. So great general knowledge. And considering I spend most of my time looking at this topic, I was really incredible, incredibly amazed at how much you actually knew. So I think you've got a great podcast going and would love to do it again sometime. Yes, sir. Maybe for 2024, 25, once Trump comes back in, we can jump back on and talk about how the Chinese-American relationship will evolve. But hey, thank you for the, thank you for the compliments and... I hope, you know, I hope we chat again. Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks, Stanley. All right, take it easy. Thank you for tuning in to Safety Lost with Stanley Ching. If you enjoyed this, then please leave a rating or a comment. I hope you're leaving with a new idea and make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and other places that can be found in the description.